When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff. So come think with me. Today's going to be a solo episode, another one of yours truly. And we're going to be talking about philosophy and theology as we discuss Descartes' dictum. That is uh, Descartes' famous cogito ergo sum. Now, I used to think that this was um, circular reasoning. This is a really bad argument because that's what everyone tells us, right? They say, this is just a failure in reasoning. And by the same reasoning process, you could say, uh, I stink, therefore I am, right? And and demonstrate your own existence from your smelliness. Or uh, others have said that uh, all you can really prove with the cogito ergo sum is that there is thinking going on, but not that there's a, a thinker who is thinking or, uh, you know, a self who belongs to the indexical I. But after reading Descartes a bit for myself and, and studying a bit more about transcendental arguments, I've come to reject those simplistic rejections of Descartes' dictum. And so uh, this episode is going to be a brief uh, defense of Descartes' cogito as well as just I'm, I'm going to lay out the argument a little bit. Uh, for If you're interested in this, for those who are interested, check out my conversation with Dr. James Anderson. And this topic has come up on uh, a few other episodes in, in the Parker's Pensies series. So uh, I can't remember where it's at right now, but I know uh, James Anderson and I talk about that. And I have abstracted out uh, the little episode, the little part during the episode. I put that uh, on YouTube, I believe. So look for that. But without further ado, let's jump in. So cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. This phrase has become famous through the teachings of French philosopher René Descartes, uh, but it's also become popular in in just modern uh, language. Like most people know this. If you've gone to high school, you you probably know this. Uh, if you watch popular movies at all, if you watch Blade Runner, you'll know this, right? Uh, one of the uh, one of the replicants, one of the androids in Blade Runner says, "I think, therefore, I am." It was the the chick, I think. Uh, it's in it's in songs. There's a popular song with that the girl with the lady, whatever the singer, who has green hair. I forgot her name right now, but she has a line, "I think, therefore, I am." It's really dumb, and I think Descartes is rolling over in his grave every time that song plays. But uh, it's out there. We know. I think, therefore, I am. We know it. We know it. And we also just know that it's false, right? That's what everyone thinks. It's just circular reasoning. This dude was a genius. Descartes was legit. Do you really think that he just made this complete error in thinking that he had no idea that this was just circular reasoning? Like That's really uncharitable. I, I think he's way smarter than that. And so let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. 
uh, Descartes was a rationalist. He thought that reason provided the foundation for all of knowledge. Uh, so he was, as a rationalist, he was skeptical about sense experience due to this lack of certainty that comes with it. Uh, I mean, think about it. You you take a stick and you go into a river, you go into a pond or whatever, you put that stick in the water and it looks like it starts to bend. It's, it's not actually bending, right? It's the light fragmenting off the water. I don't know the, the physics of, of that uh, perception there, but it's not bending after all. It looks like it is, but it's not. So our sense perceptions can deceive us. So since they can deceive us, they can't be the, the ultimate source of knowledge. Descartes, the good rationalist, says, yeah, exactly that. Empiricism is out. So his method of arriving at incorrigible knowledge, it, it's going to disparage all rival sources of criteria or all rival uh, criteria of knowledge until just reason alone prevails as king. But, but not just like reason itself, not just reason uh, with philosophers say simpliciter, not just reason, but a, a particular thought, a particular uh, statement, a particular dictum of reason. Uh, so Descartes builds his whole system on this singular, singular rational position, cogito, I think. That's, that's the foundation, that's the bedrock by which he builds up his system. Uh, if your senses can deceive you, which we've talked about they can, then they can't provide us with this, this certainty that Descartes looked for. And if the best of human, human reasoners can be wrong in their reasonings, which is true, even the smartest people you know are wrong, well, then human authority isn't the bedrock foundation for certainty either. So it's not that. Um, appeals to authority. They can't provide certainty. And even, even worse than that, human reason alone, just bare reason, can't provide you with certainty either because you could be dreaming. This is Descartes' dream argument. Uh, even when you're thinking, like you, you're experiencing reality, you're reasoning out here in reality, you could be in a dream this whole time. Dreams present themselves to us as reality when we're in them. And so it would appear that even our own reason, just as is, leaves us on shaky foundations at best. So the apparent, uh, the apparent impotency, impot the oh, that's hard. The apparent impotency, impotency, impotency of empiricism, authority, and naive common sense concerning certainty, these all led Descartes to uh, doubt everything that he could until he could find something that he can no longer doubt. And so this is why he's not just a, a rationalist per se, but he's a particular type. His rationalism comes with a certain flavor because he's doubting everything. Well, can I doubt empiricism? Can I doubt my, my perception? Yeah, I can. I can doubt that consistently. Can I doubt human authority? Yeah, I can do that. Can I doubt my own reason? Okay. Yes, I can because I could be dreaming. But there's something that you can't doubt. And that's that's what he's looking for. So Descartes employed this method of, of doubt and applied it to everything he thought he could until he found something. And he actually did. I, I think he really did find something. Certainty at last. He found it. Well, how did he find it? He, he finally found this cognitive rest. He could finally rest in his abilities here. He could finally f rest on a solid ground of certainty with the phrase, I think, therefore, I am. For doubt, though he tried, he felt he couldn't consistently doubt his own existence. And I, I do think he's right here. And I'm willing to be wrong. So if you want to leave me a comment, whatever, go ahead. Because I, I think he's right. I don't think you can refute him here. Um 
I don't know. I don't know. Let's keep going. In part four of Descartes' uh, A Discourse on the Method, he reveals uh, this bedrock foundation that he's been drilling towards, his indubitable truth, his foundation of certainty, cogito ergo sum. So it's in uh, A Discourse on the Method, part four, if you want to look this up. Uh, And this is uh, popularly translated, I think, therefore I am. But uh, Ian McLean, this this translator, he argues in in an explanatory note that a better gloss on the... uh, a better gloss is the performative, I am thinking, therefore I exist. Not just I think, therefore I am, but I am currently thinking, therefore I exist. Now, I don't know if that's a better gloss or not. I don't speak French or Latin or whatever uh, the method was written in. But it, it sounds right. Like, I, if I'm currently thinking, then I can't doubt my existence. But why does Descartes think that this dictum can suffice as, like, the indubitable first principle of his philosophy? Well, because when subjected to all his skeptical doubts, all the same ones and, and counterexamples and attacks, which these, these laid waste to all the other uh, proposed methods of uh, finding certainty, when he applied all these to his cogito, it seems like his cogito prevails unfazed. The cogito is even shown to be the very foundation for the skeptical doubts themselves. For to doubt is to think. And if I'm thinking, then I exist. So I can never truly doubt that I exist. Now, it seems pretty slick. It seems like we just got there pretty quick, but let's keep, let's keep going on it. In his Principles of Philosophy, we find one of Descartes' clearest expositions of his dictum. And it goes like this. As long as we are doubting, we cannot doubt that we exist. And this is the first thing we know when philosophizing methodologically. Thus, by rejecting all those things that we can in any way doubt, and even pretending that they are false, we easily suppose that there is no God, that there are no heavens or bodies, and that we ourselves have no hands or feet, nor indeed any body at all. But not, however, in such a way that we who think these thoughts are nothing. So we can't think that we are nothing. For it is impossible for us to think that whatever thinks does not exist during the time that it thinks. So think back to that gloss, I am thinking, therefore I exist. He's saying, while you're in that process of thinking, you can't think that you're nothing because you're thinking. Therefore, despite the most extravagant assumptions, we cannot prevent ourselves from believing that this inference, this knowledge, I am thinking, therefore I exist, is the most, is the foremost and most certain that occurs to anyone who philosophizes methodologically. And again, this is from Meditations and Other Metaphysical Writings. It's uh, Penguin Classics, page 113 through 114. So here we see that, that Descartes' cogito ergo sum depends on like a, a similar phrase, the uh, contrapositive or whatever, dubito ergo sum. I, I doubt, therefore I am or I exist. For if Descartes doubts that he thinks, he still has to think in order to doubt, right? Like that process of doubting is still thinking. So if he doubts that he thinks, he is still thinking after all. So we can't really doubt that. And if he thinks, then he exists because he is thinking. So he cannot consistently doubt that he exists without engaging in what philosophers call performative inconsistency and thus self-defeat. So the argument is that the performance of the doubt that you think is inconsistent with itself because you're by thinking something that is contradicting the very action that it takes to think you are, it, you're showing that that belief is self-defeating 
maybe not self-refuting, which would mean like it's necessarily false, like a square circle, but it's self-defeating in that it straight up defeats itself. Um, how do I explain this better? So you're saying, it's like saying, uh, I there, I don't need air in order to say this sentence, but it's like I, I used air to say the sentence right now. I, I think that's a, a decent example of self-defeat. So here we see that Descartes' cogito ergo sum depends on this similar phrase, dubito ergo sum, I doubt, therefore I exist. And with this, Descartes thought that he had found certainty. And then from this, uh, this one principle, cogito ergo sum again, he concluded that he was a substance whose whole essence or nature resides only in thinking. So he's like this thinking, rational substance. This I, this I that he deduced was uh, the immaterial soul. And this brings us to uh, substance dualism, right? So you have like the physical substance and then you have the immaterial substance. And Descartes believes that the immaterial substance is this thinking thing that he essentially is. Yes, we have bodies, but we're essentially a thinking, rational substance, which Christians call the soul. Other, other religions also call it the soul as well. And so he deduced this, uh, this I, this immaterial soul, which exists apart from the body and can survive the death of the body. And then from this conclusion, it was just a short jaunt right over to Descartes, uh, Descartes' ontological argument. Uh, and, and he says this, so ontological argument for God's existence. He says, of necessity, there must be some other more perfect being upon whom I depend and from whom I had acquired all that I possessed. So, Earlier, we heard Descartes say, I can easily doubt God's existence. Yeah, it's fine. And it's like, I really don't like that, man. As a good Vantillian, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think I can doubt God's existence. But Descartes says, I can't doubt my own existence. And then once he has that, he says, you know, I am this thing that thinks, well, I can't be the necessary being because I had a beginning. Uh, I must depend on something else, something like me, a thinking thing that is uh, necessary. I'm contingent. So there must be like this necessary thing like me, but different than me. And this we call God, right? And so a lot of people are not going to like that. I kind of like it. I kind of think it's what Van Til's talking about when he talks about proximate starting points. You start with yourself and then uh, necessary uh, reference points like God. And I don't think that's that crazy. I kind of like that a lot. And I don't think it's as anti-Christian as people think it is. Maybe it is. I'm willing to be wrong again. I'm not a Cartesian, but just saying that I'm trying to give the guy his due. I think he's doing a decent job here. It's 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 not crazily far off from what uh, Calvin says in the Institutes. Like, do I know God first or do I know the self first? Well, they're so intertwined and I'm an image bearer of God anyways. Like, I have to start with myself as a proximate starting point. Yes, obviously, because that's where I start temporally, but immediately I'm aware of like the logical necessary starting point of God's existence. If I exist, right. It's the same thing that, that Augustine is trying in the, in the soliloquies. Uh, Augustine is saying, I want to know the soul and God, nothing more, nothing, whatever. So I don't know. I'm just saying, let's be a little bit more charitable with Descartes, Christians out there, Christian apologists, Christian philosophers. Like, I don't think he was as anti-Christian as we think he was. Uh, and if he was, okay, show it, prove it to me. Cause I'm, I'm willing to be wrong and yeah, maybe I'll burn all my Descartes books. Probably not, but maybe. Um, so this getting back to it, this is Descartes cogito. He thinks he's finally found this bedrock foundation and I think he might be right. And then he 
he jumps right over to an ontological argument showing that God must exist if he exists. Uh, some have, have argued again, they, they say, well, if I can say, I think therefore I exist, then I stink therefore I am, right? Along with other you know, hilarious counterexamples. But these criticisms miss Descartes' rationalistic emphasis. For Descartes, sense experience could always be doubted, right? And that's what your olfactory, you know, smelling, uh, olfactory nerves and all that good stuff. Like smelling, you can be wrong. Do I really, do I really stink? Maybe I'm just having a, a hallucination. Maybe, um, I don't know, I have a, a brain lesion uh, going with planning a, that makes me think that I stink, but I actually don't stink. <clears throat> so for Descartes, sense experience can always be deceived. Thus I stink, therefore I am, can always be subjected to doubt. It could always be a malfunctioning olfactory uh, receptor or whatever. Similarly, uh, Descartes says that to say I see or I walk, therefore I am, can also be doubted since we often have dreams where we're seeing and walking. And yet those are illusory, right? We're being deceived in those. So those can't be proper candidates for bedrock foundational uh, certainty in the same way that just thinking can be. Thinking or doubting, whichever one is more foundational there. So even if we're dreaming, we can be deceived, right? So that can't be it either. So while the possibility of deception precludes other sources of knowledge, uh, they can't be our bedrock foundation, right? Deception itself presupposes thinking, which presupposes a thinker, I. So if I'm deceived at all, then I'm still thinking. I'm the one being deceived, so I must exist. If you're deceiving me, if I'm deceived, then I still exist. What's being deceived if it's not for, if it's not me, if it's not I, right? Now, some of you might be going, that's just like the definition of uh, circular reasoning. Uh, the Latins like petitio principi or something like that. Um, it's just circular reasoning, dude. You just demonstrated. I, I don't think so. And we're going to get into transcendental arguments. And here's why I, I think it's not circular reasoning. Let me just, uh, I'm following along in my, my blog post here. If you guys want to see this written, a lot of times it's it's better for me to, to read than to hear. Um, so you can find this at uh, parkersetacase.com. It's called Defending Descartes' Dictum. Some of you guys like hearing it better. So that's what I'm doing. But uh, let's go with let's go with uh, Richard Swinburne. He, he demonstrates this move from the I to like the substance, the substance dualism we talked about earlier. And uh, to, Swinburne, I used to not like Swinburne again. I didn't like Descartes, didn't like Swinburne until I started reading these guys. Swinburne came out with this great book, Are We Bodies or Souls? And it looks like a false dilemma on the cover, but he probably didn't even make that. It was probably the uh, the publisher who, who titled it. But either way, it's great. It's a great book. Swinburne says, um, in response, this is great. This is great. So we've talked about, I stink, therefore I am. But what about the charge that there's just thinking going on? This is what I hear all the time from my own professors. When I say, what about Descartes' dictum? And they go, well, all it really shows is that there's thinking going on. It doesn't show that there's the thinker. It doesn't prove Descartes' existence or your existence, Parker. It proves that there's thinking going on. So Swinburne makes this great move in responding to that claim and then still arguing for substance dualism. He says, the 18th century thinker, George Littenberg, famously objected that all that Descartes knows via his cogito ergo sum argument is that there is thinking going on, not that some person is doing the thinking. But that objection seems mistaken. Thinking is a property, and there can only be an instance of some property if some substance has that property. And Descartes does not know merely that someone somewhere is thinking. He knows who it is that is doing the thinking. 
himself. This is in Are We Bodies or Souls, page 73. Check it out for yourself. But what Swinburne is arguing here is that uh, the property of thinking needs a substance to be in, to instantiate it. Thus, if there's thinking going on, then there's a substance. There's uh, a substance where this property like inheres, where it, it is, where it's grounded. Uh, grounded is a good word. I think that's probably right. Swinburne, following Descartes, then goes on to argue from the cogito to more fleshed out substance dualism i.e. that we are we are bodies and souls even though essentially like we are souls according to swinburne i think he's probably right too uh we are these immaterial rational souls uh so because i have this direct awareness of the thinking that's going on uh it's mine it's my conscious it's not just a floating property around um, some people might might argue that there are properties that don't need to be instantiated in substances. I really don't know enough about metaphysics to know if that's true or not. It seems intuitive to me that properties need substances to instantiate them. And so if I have this property of thinking, then I am the substance to which that property belongs or inheres or is uh, grounded in. There's another word I'm thinking of. Uh, I can't think of it right now. But anyways... So I have direct awareness of my conscious experience of my thoughts, but I don't have a conscious experience of your thoughts. So it's not crazy to say, well, these are my thoughts. I, they're mine. I don't have yours. I have mine. Do I have the knowledge of my like unity of experience, my unity of consciousness over time? Maybe not by this argument, but all this argument is saying is that I am thinking, therefore I exist. It doesn't have to do with like identity over time kind of stuff. It has to do with existence right now when you're thinking or when you're doubting. If I'm doubting my existence, I'm still currently thinking at that moment. Doubting is a type of thinking. So I can't doubt that I'm thinking. And if I'm thinking, then I exist. I love that. I think that's right. Um, even if I were to doubt that I exist, I must presuppose that I exist in order to doubt. So here's where we're getting into some presuppositions and we're setting up the, the transcendental move. Swinburne talks about uh, informal designators and, and uh, uninformal designators, which are, dude, I don't know enough about that, but um, I did when I read it and it made a lot of sense. If it's informal, if it's a, oh, sorry, if it's informative, there we go. That makes a lot more sense. So, uh, I is an informative designator for me. It's my I. I exist, but it's not for you because when I'm thinking, you don't have this informative designator that's telling you that I exist because it's my thought. It's my thought process. It's my property of thinking. It's not yours. So maybe it's an uninformative designator for you. You're thinking like, oh, he's thinking, so maybe he exists, but that's completely different. He thinks, therefore he exists, is not the same as I think, therefore I exist. It's like the, the self-reference here and shows your existence in a different way than that guy thinks, therefore he exists, I think. So uh, James Anderson, in, in our conversation, he says, we don't need to go to full-blown substance dualist, dualism, though he is a, a substance dualist himself, but he's saying, we don't need to go there uh, in order to show that Descartes' argument is a successful transcendental argument, there are people who are not substance dualists who still think that Descartes' argument is solid or who still could think that it's solid without the extra baggage or whatever of going in full on uh, substance dualism. Uh, 
And Anderson pointed me to Adrian Barden's uh, Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on Transcendental Arguments, where Barden explains that Descartes' dictum is actually a powerful transcendental argument. That is an argument which takes this given, this uncontentious or intrinsic phenomena of human experience, and then it seeks to show the necessary conditions which make that experience possible. So look, we have this human experience, we have all these things that go on in our daily lives, these phenomena, right? Like what's going on in here? And like there's thinking going on, right? And we take that and we say, that's something that we don't want to refute or that we that we think is uncontentious. You think, I think, cool. So we have thinking. What must be true? What must be true underneath? What's holding that thinking up? What must be true if I'm able to think? That's that's the type of argument that a transcendental argument is. People have called it indirect instead of direct. You're you're taking something, and you're not going step by step by step building something up. You're saying, if we have this, then this down here must be true because this supports this. It's kind of like a foundational argument, argument from foundations, but it's a transcendental argument. It, that language kind of starts with, with Immanuel Kant, but the type of argument, I think, goes all the way back to, to at least to Aristotle, where he's talking about the law of non-contradiction, that something can't both be and not be in the same way, in the same manner. And he's saying, can we prove this law of contradiction like in a direct fashion? Can we make an argument for it? Well, no, because any argument is going to presuppose the law of non-contradiction. Okay, so then that's an indirect argument. You can't even think without it. So that shows that it's true or verific. Verific? If it's uh, veridical. It's, it, it holds. It's a it's like a sound indirect argument. It's a transcendental argument. If If I'm able to reason at all, then the law of non-contradiction exists, holds, however you want to say that. So uh, going back to Barden, he notes that a few scholars um, have actually observed that Descartes' cogito ergo sum argument can be reconceived as a transcendental argument. So premise one, I think. Premise two, in order to think, in order to think, you know, I think, it is necessary to exist. So a necessary precondition of thinking that I think is existence. Existence is a necessary condition, precondition of thinking. So in order to think, I think, in order to think the proposition I think, it is necessary to exist. Hence, three, I exist. So one more time, I think, in order to think I think, it is necessary to exist. Hence, I exist. So instead of seeing this as like a circular, viciously circular argument, it's an argument from foundation that's saying, here's this phenomena of human experience, I think. But then a precondition of thinking is existence. And so if I think, I think, if I think that proposition, that thought, if I think about the proposition I think, right, if I have that in my head, then I must exist as a necessary precondition of having that thought. So this this argument meets the criteria for being a transcendental argument. It takes a fact about one's mental life as a premise uh, this is Barden still, and add some extra mental fact as a necessary condition for the truth of that premise and concludes the extra mental fact holds. Now, existence is that extra mental fact because we're saying existence happens out here outside the mental. Unless you're an idealist, an idealist would say everything is mental. Nothing exists outside the mental. But as like a realist, uh, Descartes and me and probably you think that there's an extra extra mental reality outside of us. And so you're starting with this mental reality and you're saying what must be true. There's meant extra mental 
fact of my existence must be true if I'm able to think at all. So uh, Barden, going on with Barden again, he says, this argument would turn on the claim that the statement, I do not exist, or better, the proposition that no one exists, is performatively self-defeating in the sense that the fact of its performance counts as conclusive evidence against its truth. Remember, we talked about performative inconsistency and self-defeat. I tried to give an example. It wasn't that great. But Barden here is, is explaining exactly that. He says, you know, again, performatively self, it's performatively self-defeating to doubt one's existence or doubt that no one exists. Because in performing that action, that speech, that thought, in performing that, you're showing that it's actually false, that it's, that it's not true. Because if you were able to think that, then someone exists and someone's thinking. So that's self-defeating. That thought, that statement, whatever you're doing with that is self-defeating. Which would this is evidence against its truth, veracity. It it that's that's not true if you can think. So uh, that is what connects the mental fact I am thinking about whether I exist to the relevant extra mental fact, right? I exist. Regardless of how this argument might fail in some other respect, it presupposes neither verificationism nor idealism in closing the gap between the internal and external. So there, Barden is referencing uh, Barry Stroud's argument against transcendental arguments that they're either like superfluous, that uh, you don't need them because you actually have to have some kind of verification principle alongside of your transcendental argument, which would be like, well, then just use the verification principle instead of a transcendental argument. If you have to have something else in order to make your transcendental argument work, just drop the argument and use the other thing, the verification principle. Or uh, Stroud also said, well, you have to be kind of you have to be committed to some form of idealism, right? Immanuel Kant was a transcendental idealist, meaning that, meaning that um, he's an idealist, not that, not in the sense that like everything out there exists that exists is just the thought, but that the only thing we can't get to the noumena in it, we can't get to the thing in itself. So everything we see is all phenomena, and it doesn't really tell us about the real world in itself. So there might be a tree out here, but it might be like uh, the upside down, the underneath, the upside down in uh, Stranger Things, right? It might be all slimy and crap, but I don't have the mental framework in order to see that. And so all I see is the phenomenal realm. So that's Kant's transcendental idealism. And Barry Stroud wants to say, if you want to hold, if you want to use transcendental arguments, you either you either need this verification principle or this, uh, or you need to be an idealist of some of some form. There is no extra mental fact out there. But what Barden is saying here, I know we're getting looped up, we're getting kind of tangled here. What Barden is saying is that uh, Descartes' cogito ergo sum as a transcendental argument actually evades both of these charges. It, it gives you an extra mental fact, your existence, from this mental fact, I am thinking, which shows you you exist extra mentally, right? Um that's legit. That's awesome. I really, really, really like that because Stroud's critique of transcendental arguments looms large over that whole field. And some, some people think he just totally destroyed it. But Adrian Barden, at least, is saying Descartes has been here the whole time and this has been a transcendental argument and it evades the critique. So at least one transcendental argument evades the critique, even if it isn't true, I guess, or whatever. I think it's true, though. So you know, come at me. Let me know in the comments. Get, getting back to it, let's wrap this up here. A necessary condition of thinking is a subject, a thinker, who is engaging in that act. To deny that you are thinking 
is self-defeating because you're, because you're thinking, right? Like, so it'll be self-defeating to think you're not th- thinking. Likewise, to doubt your own existence presupposes your existence and is likewise self-defeating. So from the phenomena that I am thinking, I can know that I exist or, uh, or I am, right? Yeah, yeah, sorry, I wrote this down weird. I, I know that I exist or that I am. Even to doubt one's own existence is evidence that one exists. Now, now finishing up, I, I think this is important to note that Descartes probably jacked this from Augustine. He probably just ripped this right out of without a footnote. Now, times were different. They didn't use footnotes the same way. I think they still did use footnotes in the 17th century when Descartes was around. Um. 17th century or 18th? I think it was 17th. He could have he could have said, as Augustine has said, but he didn't. And I think he just ripped this off of him. So let me just lay it out for you guys, and you can say whether you think he stole it from him or not. <clears throat> uh, Augustine, so Descartes has cogito ergo sum. I think therefore I am. Augustine said, see fowler sum, which is really interesting. See fowler sum. If I'm uh, mistaken, then I exist. So Augustine spilled all this ink refuting the skeptics of his day, uh, chief of which were ironically the academics or academicians, which were those who studied in Plato's academy. Now, uh, this is this one's for free, but this is ironic because Plato spent much of his time refuting the sophists, 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 uh, and skeptics of his own day, only to have his own school turn towards skepticism. Like, that sucks because Plato's whole thing was, I'm going to refute these sophists who just get paid to argue whichever way they want. They're kind of relativists of his time. Yeah, truth is whatever. Truth is uh, whoever pays the most, right? I'll go with that. Plato's like, no, no, you're wrong. And he's writing against them again and again and again. And then his academy, I think Plato was like 490 BC, maybe something like that. Dude, I'm, I'm bad with dates. But Augustine is like, you know, after Christ, right? Uh, is, Augustine is in the 400s, I believe. So I'm, I may just be embarrassing myself. I either sound really smart or really embarrassingly dumb. But there's a lot of time that passes and Plato's Academy is continuing on. But they all turn towards skepticism by the time of Augustine's uh, era, when Augustine is writing, which is crazy. So Augustine, in responding to these academics, these people of the academy, these academicians, Augustine says, uh, they're skeptics, right? They're trying to show... Augustine, that he doesn't know anything. And he says, where these truths are concerned, I fear none of the arguments of the academicians when they say, what if you're in error concerning, you know, your own existence? Augustine responds, if I'm in error, I exist. And that's the Latin, see, fowler, sum. If I'm in error, I exist. See, fowler, sum. Someone who doesn't exist surely can't be in error. In light of this fact, I exist if I'm in error. Therefore, since I exist, if I'm an error, how can I be an error about my existing? When it's certain that I exist, if I'm an error, because I would have to exist if I were an error, then even if I were an error, I am therefore undoubtedly, undoubtedly not an error about knowing that I know. For just as I know that I exist, so too, I know this very fact that I know it. So Augustine similarly not similarly, uh, I can't say that word, similarly, Augustine came way before Descartes, and he's arguing against these skeptics who say, well, what if you're wrong? What if you're mistaken about your own existence? And and Augustine's like, no, because if I'm wrong, I still exist. I can't can't be wrong about my existence. I can't think that thought. That thought is self-defeating, though they didn't use those words back then. 
So I, I'm pretty swayed by the fact that, uh, by the, the thought that Descartes straight up just ripped this out of Augustine with not so much as a footnote giving credit. Uh, but whereas Augustine uses this line just as like a one-off against the, uh, against the academic academicians, the skeptics of his day, Descartes actually uses this as a bedrock foundation for building entire uh, epistemology, and indeed his his whole philosophy. Like this is what it means to be a, a Cartesian foundationalist. You're building up foundations, right? So you have this foundational bedrock, and then you can oh, I can add some more beliefs on here once I have this firm foundation of the cogito. Uh Here's where, you know, I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not a Cartesian, right? So I don't want to build all my epistemology off the fact that I exist. All I'm saying is that I think that this argument's sound, and I think it actually goes back to Augustine anyways. And Augustine had, you know, very firm allegiance to God. Um, Descartes said he, he found it easy to suppose that there was no God. I don't, I don't think Augustine would ever say anything like that. So if this argument is good, the cogito, and you don't like Descartes, just say it's from Augustine. It it is. See Fowler Sum. Just say that. If I if I'm mistaken about my existence, I exist. It's all right. I don't know how I feel about Descartes. Uh, his contemporary, uh, well, a couple years younger, Pascal. He's attributed with saying, "I cannot forgive Descartes." In his whole philosophy, he would like to do without God, but he could not allow him. He could not help allowing him a flick of the fingers to set the world in motion. After that, he had no more use for God. I don't know. I don't know. Like, should we really go that hard at Descartes? Pascal knew him better than I do. I mean, they, they were not quite contemporaries, but they met on at least one occasion. They're both Frenchmen. Like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, I think that Pascal was a, a more firm believer in God. I think his Christianity was stronger. You read the the Pensees. It's it, it reads better than the meditations, for sure, at least when it comes to God. I don't think Descartes was trying to destroy Christianity. I think he actually was a Christian himself. He said he wanted his method to like supplant that of Aquinas in the church. Now, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. But as I reflect on Descartes' dictum, I find that I moved from antagonistic to enthusiastic. Now, again, I'm not a full-blown Cartesian, but I came into this... Um, the cogito thinking about Descartes' philosophy more in line with with Pascal, um, but now I'm, I'm I'm warming up to it a little bit, and my my Ventilian friends out there, this won't make sense to a lot of you guys, but my Ventilian friends will say you, you are being a Cartesian dude. You're you're saying you can know stuff without God. I, I like I said earlier, I think this falls in line pretty closely with Calvin and Calvin's sentiments and Augustine's sentiments in the soliloquies that. I want to know the soul and God, nothing more, nothing, whatever. I want to know a lot more than that, right? But those are very important things to know. And in Calvin, in Institutes uh, 1, he says, what comes first, knowledge of God or knowledge of man? He kind of doesn't know. And I think this this fits, though Descartes would say knowledge of self comes first. Van Til kind of says the same thing. Van Til goes in on that, and he talks about proximate and ultimate starting points. The self is obvious, obviously the proximate starting point temporally, like you, you do start with yourself. You don't like, you're not born and you're like, I know God. Oh, and now I know me. It doesn't work like that. But the logical starting, starting point or ultimate reference point is certainly God. Van Til talks about this uh, in his 
floor beams analogy. He says, we start on the floor, like we're on the floor of a house, but we know the underneath the floorboards are floor beams. These big old beams that are holding up the whole house. Because if I'm able to stand on this floor, there must be beams uh, upholding it. Likewise, if I'm able to think, there must be God underneath upholding me. Like God must be if I'm able to think. Though I've started with myself, I've started with the floor beams, they presuppose God's existence underneath. Fantil also gives an analogy of a diving board. You start at the end of the diving board, you just kind of like snap into consciousness, and you're like, okay, I'm at, the, I'm at the end of a diving board. But I know or presupposed by my ability to stand on the edge of a diving board is that there is a foundation to the diving board, that it's locked into something. Otherwise, I would just be floating out in nowhere. And that's not the case. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this as well with a, a lily pond analogy. He says, you may look at this beautiful lily pond and you see these lilies, you might see some flowers, but you know that from the existence of them on the surface, there must be a ground, uh, a, not a floor. You, there must be like a bedrock. There must be a bottom to the lily pond. It doesn't just go down and down forever. So like from the existence of the lily uh, flowers on the surface of the pond, you can rationally infer that there is a, uh, I can't think of it again. There is bedrock underneath. There's a bottom to the pond. I think that's what's going on with Descartes dictum. I think therefore I exist. And then he moves on. If I exist, there must be another thinker like me. And that's the ontological argument from Descartes comes apart from his cogito ergo sum. So I understand that people might still have qualms with his argument saying like, okay, if it is successful, it doesn't show that God exists. Okay. Maybe it doesn't, but I think from the fact that you exist and that you're contingent, you can make a very good argument for God's existence from there immediately, just as Descartes does or Van Til does or C.S. Lewis does. All I'm saying, we need to rethink this argument. We need to think through it a little bit better. If you pit it, if you pitch it, if you pit it, if you couch it, if you give it as a transcendental argument, it's much stronger than just assuming it's circular reasoning. Um, I suggest you you dive into that Swinburne book because he he develops Descartes' cogito argument uh, better way in a better way than I can. Or listen to uh, James Anderson talk about that. Look up uh, the Barden essay um, in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy under Transcendental Arguments. Uh, check that out because that, there's a transcendental form of it. I'm just saying, let's rethink it. I'm not saying it's knockdown, drag out. I think it's right. I'm willing to be wrong. Let me know in the comments, whatever. Um, we could talk about this more. I think we probably will, but for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.